For example, the historian Robert Coles has written, nothing could be nicer than a cup of tea, but only the water and milk were English. While this is a sentiment that remains true today, the point here is that the history of English people's daily consumption of tea opens up a pathway to examine the British colonisation of India, including the establishment of tea plantations in Assam and Darjeeling. Sugar, like many other commodities, was dependent upon the exploitation of slave labour in the Caribbean colonies. On a more intimate level, some population geneticists have argued that one consequence of empire and slavery is that there is no such thing as a purely white British or purely black British African Caribbean family within the UK. Rather, the histories of interracial intercourse, including those of rape and coercion between the coloniser and colonised, render black British and white British mixed in terms of racial ancestry and descent. One consequence of these histories of empire is that the, the black and South Asian people who migrated to England and other parts of Britain from the former colonies and their descendants have intimate, complex histories, relationships and genealogical connections to Englishness and Britishness that run very deep. Now, this book does not provide the reader with a history of the British Empire. Rather, in mobilising what I call post-colonial perspective, it examines some of the legacies of empire on the formation of contemporary white and interracial um, ethnicities. And by the term interracial, uh, I mean mixed race in, in um, sort of um, English vernacular. I like that term interracial as opposed to mixed race. So in so doing, this book explores some of the ways in which the colonial worldview of white Western cultural superiority mediates the formation of white and interracial ethnicities in these contemporary post-colonial times. Now, a central argument of the book is that crucial to the reproduction of racial differences and hierarchies in the present is the art of forgetting the significance of the colonial past in shaping contemporary and everyday formations of whiteness and Englishness. From this standpoint, the, the book traces and analyses how some white English people tend to scream out, forget, silence, and do not know the meaning and significance of the colonial past within everyday racialised discourses and practices. One effect of this is for British Asians and Black Britons ancestral connections and relationships to Englishness, Britishness to be displaced and forgotten. I also examine how white, middle and working class people living in differing racialised and class locales reflect upon the presence of British Asian residents in the places that they live. My argument is that in the post-colonial era, British Asians are presented in the white hegemonic imagination as racialised immigrants. In this sense, British Asians represent an undecidable figure who stand betwixt and between foreigner and citizen, a colonial past and a national present, the West and the non-West, one of us and one of them. Crucially, this book's examination of white cultural hegemony is analysed in conjunction with an exploration of the situations, contexts and conditions in which representations and worldviews of white Western cultural superiority are contested, challenged, fractured and broken down. Thus, white hegemony is not complete, but allows spaces for questioning, challenging and confrontation of dominant norms and ways of thinking about race, ethnicity and difference in the post-colonial present. 
In this regard, the book explores how the processes of remembering the slave past mediate the formation of the members of interracial families' ethnicities, which opens up a space for the critical questioning of white power and privilege within English society. In short, this study scrutinises, traces and analyses both the forgetting of the colonial past within white discourses that objectify and other British Asians, as well as the active mobilisation and evocation of slave pasts and histories by the members of interracial families when they think about the formation of their identities in the present. So turning then to the ethnography on which this um, book is based, it draws on nearly 27 months of multi-sided residential ethnographic fieldwork carried out over two separate time periods. My fieldwork was situated in Leicestershire, a provincial region in the East Midlands area of England. The city of Leicester is situated approximately 100 miles northeast of London. Leicester is famous nationally for its British Asian populations, which settled in the city at the time of um, decolonisation of the British Empire and its aftermath. In, in, in stark contrast to the ethnic diversity of the city, the surrounding countryside of Leicestershire is predominantly white in terms of population profile. My work in Leicester and Leicestershire was based on um, field work then within and across three separate research locales and included participant observation and in-depth interviews. In 1997, I conducted six months of Rex taking me a bit to write this book. I conducted six months of residential fieldwork in Greenville, a suburban village that is situated on the border of the city of Leicester and the countryside of Leicestershire. Immediately after fieldwork in Greenville, I conducted a further six months of residential fieldwork in Colville, a former coal mining town situated in northwest Leicestershire. Greenville's pseudonym, Colville is the real name of the town. My field works in these locales studied white people's perceptions of British Asians who lived locally. And the first three ethnographic chapters of this book draw upon field work from Greenville and Colville, respectively. Two further ethnographic chapters draw upon 16 months of field work that I conducted between 2002 and 3 in Streetville, pseudonym, which is an inner city and ethnically diverse area of Leicester. In Streetville, I became actively involved in local community-based politics and interviewed white, black and interracial members of interracial families. So in the white English imagination, the idea of the village and the coal mining town are national symbols of Englishness that are associated with a distinctively white culture and aesthetic. While the contemporary village in the mind represents a white, rural and essentially middle-class ideal of Englishness, the image of the coal mining town in post-industrial England signifies a working class image of nation, which is associated with whiteness. In contrast to the whitened and homogeneous class images associated with the former coal mining town and the village respectively, the inner city signifies a multicultural image of nation that is fragmented by class and ethnicity. One aim of this book is to complicate these national images of Englishness through an exploration of the contemporary salience of these popular images of place, ethnicity, class and nation. And these things, place, ethnicity, class and nation, is central to my theoretical sort of framing. And to do this, I trace everyday configurations 
of the meaning and constitution of racial, national and class identities within and between the ethnographic field sites of the village, the former coal mining town and the inner city in Leicester and Leicestershire. So in one sense, that's a, I've given you now a sort of snapshot, an overview of the whole book and some of its central themes. And I want to step back now and give you a bit more of an insight into the theoretical framing. Uh, um, and then I want to, after I've done that, uh, so that's really boring, bear with it, because then I'll talk a bit about some of the methodology and the, you know, the, the experience of doing this ethnography, which uh, might grab, you know, some more of you, you know, different bits you might key in on. So um, I want to think now at how we might think about whiteness studies through a post-colonial view. Now, um, I've already alluded to the ways in which my study of whiteness in Leicestershire draws upon and contributes to a body of interdisciplinary literature entitled White Ethnicity Studies or Whiteness Studies. And forgive me if you know all about this, but I'm going to tell you a bit about them. Scholars in this field of inquiry set out to expose the formation of white ethnic and racial identities. Historically, social science studies in the field of race and ethnicity have focused on the lives of the oppressed. That is often minorities that are racially and ethnically marked as other by the white majority culture. However, the aim of whiteness studies is to turn the table on this approach by looking head-on at the constitution of white ethnic identity and the reproduction of white people's power. The reason for such an exploration is to illuminate the impact of racism on those who perpetuate it. White power has always been visible to those people that have been enslaved, colonised, subjugated and discriminated against by whites. Whiteness studies builds on this perspective to challenge the idea that matters of race and ethnicity are just black issues. Proponents of whiteness studies contend that it is the invisible and unspoken, unspeakable even, constitution of white ethnicities that facilitates the reproduction of white power and dominance in Western societies. At the collective and institutional level, the everyday um, so, so, so this, 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 this white power is reproduced then in Western societies at the collective and institutional level, as well as in the everyday rhythms of white people's lives. By contrast, those who are defined by the white majority as not white or not white enough speak from particular racialized subject locations that set them apart from the white majority. It follows from this insight that part of the power of whiteness lies in its ability to displace the very nature of its own construction. Thus, this literature sets out to render visible the historical, political, social and cultural construction and constitution of white ethnicities in Western societies. And the effect of this is to contribute to ongoing critiques of racism. Now, as I've already suggested, a key contention of this book is the idea that the very construction of the white Western um, subject is the legacy of slavery, European expansion and colonialism. And I don't think many people disagree with this, you know, in this field. So most scholars that study the formation of white ethnicities in the, in the West would agree with this. Um, but yet, I'm sort of arguing, maybe a bit cheekily, that little critical attention has been given by these scholars to the legacies of empire upon the formation of contemporary white ethnicities. The effect of this is for the significance of the colonial past on the formation of contemporary white ethnicities to be conceived only superficially or sometimes just ignored. 
Now, notwithstanding this oversight within white ethnicities, there are, of course, you know, exceptions. You know, make a claim and say that there are people who do this, of course. And I'm thinking here, I mean, I've been particularly influenced by the work of Georgie Wimis um, on the Invisible Empire in East London and Caroline Knowles' work on the legacies of empire in Devon. Now, but the approach that I take in this book in making these connections between the past and the present closely follows Ruth Frankenberg's work on the role and place of the colonial in the formation of contemporary American social life. And so it's to the details of her study that I'm now going to elaborate. In her profoundly important book, White Women, Race Matters, Frankenberg sets out to examine how race shapes the lives of white, middle and working class American women who self-identify as feminists. Central to Frankenberg's thesis is her argument that there are close ties in the US between racist and colonial discourses, as well as between colonial and post-colonial constructions of whiteness and westerness. At the, at the heart of European imperialism was ways of knowing those colonised that were supported in the 19th century by academic disciplines such as anthropology, geography, linguistics and history. You know, classic Edward Over time, a body of knowledge about the supposed inferiority of those colonised was produced. This so-called knowledge about non-Western others was crucial to the ideological justification, political, cultural and economic expansion and imposition of European colonialism. And Frankenberg neatly summarises the relationship of power and violence underpinning the production of Western knowledge about the other as follows. And I quote from Frankenberg. Central to this colonial discourse, and there's many colonial discourses, here she's picking out one strand, is the notion of the colonised subject as irreducibly other from the standpoint of the Western self, equally significant while discursively generating and marking a range of cultural and racial others as different from an apparently stable Western or white self, the Western self is produced as an effect of the discursive production of its others. So clearly then, crucial to the colonial project was the maintenance and control of a fixed and immutable sense of racial distinction between those colonised and the coloniser. Moreover, the white Western self came into being and took meaning in relation to the construction of absolute racial difference. And while in some contexts these differences could be celebrated and valorised, they nonetheless remained absolute. Frankenberg argues that it's this type of dichotomous and hierarchical worldview that is played out in her white female interviewee's descriptions of themselves and those they identified as racially and culturally other. Thus sharing some parallels with the colonial past, the white women's descriptions of racialised others were often hierarchical and dualistic. One consequence of this discourse is for whiteness and Americanness to take meaning with reference to non-white others who were thereby excluded from these categories. So I just want to pause for a moment in order to reflect upon and summarise how Frankenberg's work has helped me to think of, about what constitutes a post-colonial perspective on whiteness in Leicestershire. A post-colonial perspective traces and analyses the reproduction of the colonial worldview in relation to the maintenance of control of white Western superiority in the present. Intrinsic to this worldview is originally binominal opposition, separating the racially unmarked white Western self from racially marked non-white, non-Western others. In other words, the white Western self is defined and constituted in part by ideas and images of non-white and non-Western others. 
It is this worldview of white Western cultural superiority and the production of irreducible differences separating the white self from the racialized other that I trace, scrutinize, and analyze in parts one and two of this book. And to do this, I examine white constructions of British Asians across semi-rural and urban ethnoscapes in Leicester and Leicestershire. However, given the very different histories of America and Britain in relation to matters of race, nation and colonialism, my work takes a somewhat direction, a different direction from Frankenberg's approach to the colonial. This book builds upon and develops Frankenberg's ideas in order to argue that central to white constructions of racialized others in the English context is the screening out and displacing of the significance and meaning of the colonial past in the formation of the present. From this standpoint, my contention is that supporting the manifestation of coloniality in the present is what Barna Hesse has identified as white amnesia of the colonial past. And here is clearly drawing on Stuart Hall, uh, Paul Gilroy and so forth, who also made similar arguments. So Hesse and Sayid argue that British Asians' relationships to Britain that were formed through centuries of empire are routinely terminated by white Britons in everyday speech, thought and social practices and in government policies and administration. Consequently, the role of colonial rule, violence, and exploitation in the creation of Britain's wealth, history, culture, identity, political power, and so on, is displaced. For Sayid, this means that post-colonial people's relationship to Britain is seen to commence only at the moment when they or their ancestors got off the plane or boat in Britain. The eclipsing of British Asian people's relationships to the British nation in this way supports what Hesse and Sayid refer to as the commonsensical, banal and ubiquitous maintenance and control of the immigrant imaginary. The latter is constituted by a chain of hierarchical cultural differences that separate post-colonial settlers and their descendants from the white majority. In this, white, what, in this way, whites come to represent the host community, whereas British Asians become positioned as members of the immigrant community, peoples whose origins are thought to be found straightforwardly outside of the nation and are ultimately the West. Now, this depiction of British Asians as immigrants ensures that the nation and the host society rem remain unchanged by the British Asian present. The presence, and it is exactly the representation of British Asians as immigrants and the processes of white amnesia that underpin that, that representation that I examine in details in part one of the book, and then it becomes a theme that I trace throughout the other chapters. Now, not to sort of rubbish this, this line of argumentation, Hesse and Sayed propose that the current time also includes new possibilities for questioning, challenging, and resisting the excesses of coloniality. And it's in this vein that Frankenberg explores those circumstances in which the white middle and working class women in, in her study at times drew on the language of anti-imperialist as well as anti-racist movements as they attempted to think critically about racism in their lives. This point is also crucial in my exploration of the discourses of coloniality in Leicestershire. In part two of the book, I explore the conditions in which some white people come to confront and challenge the racism of others. I will show that this is a complex and difficult process. In spite of the good intentions of some white individuals, it's not always easy for them to step outside of the discourses of coloniality, even when it is their intention to seek to do so. 
However, the most potent example of the actual work of challenging, confronting and dismantling white power and privilege is to be found in interracial families' ancestral accounts, which are explored in part three of the book. And this aspect of the book examines how the members of interracial families draw upon slave ancestries to articulate relationships and identities across colour lines. Thus, an analysis of the subjectivities of the members of interracial families reveals how the silences and erasures of the colonial past are inverted, and the vehicle by which to contemplate processes of remembering the colonial does finally emerge. Central to this process is a critical questioning of white privilege, power and dominance in English society. So that's something on whiteness then in the colonial and how I'm thinking about that. And now I want to talk to you about another theme of the book, which is class uh, uh, that's running throughout. So central to my examination of whiteness is an exploration of the way in which white ethnicities are entwined in in class distinctions and inequalities. In this way, racial and class distinctions and identities become inscribed within and the co-constituting of each other. Bridget Bryan argues in her study of the interplay of whiteness, gender and social class in London that race and class are not only interrelated but can be subject to similar analysis. From this point of view, Bryan suggests, sorry, Byrne, I read it, but it's Bridget Byrne. I don't know why I do that. I give people made up names. So she suggests that class identities, um, like ethnic identities, are embodied. Thus, visible markers of class identity and distinction become inscribed on the body and can be read and interpreted by others. In addition, the ways in which individuals perceive others in class and ethnic terms impacts upon their sense of who they are, which in turn is bound up with their feeling of social value and self-worth. The profound significance of class to the formation of identity is brought sharply into view by the assertion of Kuhn that class is something beneath your clothes, under your skin, in your psyche, at the very core of your being. It might also be argued that the same can be said for ethnicity, to the extent that ethnic identity is not only inscribed and marked on the body, but is central to an individual's worldview and sense of self. Now, my approach to social class has been influenced by the work of Beverly Skates, and she's very popular at the moment, so it's, you know, it's me and everyone else, I think. And by, uh, okay, so, uh, and for good reason. And by some of the ways in which her ideas have been, have been used by whiteness studies scholars to deconstruct the power and privilege of white class ethnicities in Britain. Herself influenced by the work and thought of Pierre Bourdieu, Skeg shows how over time and across space, certain markers of class distinction have been defined by the powerful to signify the appropriation and embodiment of differing forms of capital. Class positioning is thus a constant process of creating distinction between oneself and others on the grounds of physical appearance, social decorum, <coughs> educational credentials, wealth, aesthetic taste, and so on. Class identities are always gauged, judged, and measured in relation to dominant white middle-class values and norms. Now, recently, sociologists who study the formation of white ethnicities in Britain have shown how the heterogeneity of white middle and working class identities become cross-cut and constituted by access to differing forms of capital. Moreover, white people's class positioning and class aspirations for themselves and their families affect and shape how they represent and engage with ethnic minorities. 
central to discourses of racial and class distinction are ideas about the proper and respectable constitution of place. From this perspective, certain areas of a village, a town, or a city become associated with particular white, sorry, with particular people identified by geographies of roughness and respectability. In this sense, whites are often in search of comfortable and respectable places of belonging that vary in terms of openness to racial and class differences. In short, racial and class distinctions and identity identities become inscribed and embedded within people and places. Drawing together and, and so I'm drawing together and I'm building upon these sociological perspectives on the embedding of race, class, and place in, in this book. And I examine in the ethnographic chapters how white research participants' ideas and experiences of the place in which they live become entwined with their ideas about the proper racialized and class constitution of the white South and British Asian others. In this sense, Places become sites for the production of social identities through the construction of racialized others that are always already seen through a lens that is classed. In short, everyday constructions of the white self and um, British Asian others are simultaneously raced, classed and placed. Now, although scholars in the field of whiteness studies in Britain have drawn attention to and analysed the class constitution of white identities and racism, more often than not, it's the white working classes that have been the subject of analysis. With this bias in mind, Byrne has recently pointed out that the white middle classes and their expressions of racism have received much less attention within whiteness studies. One aim of this book is to address this imbalance through an exploration of the formation of white middle-class ethnicities in the chapters on Greenville. Furthermore, my focus upon the formation of white working-class racialized discourses in Colville and Streetville, respectively, combined with my study of Greenville, provides a comparative insight into how both the middle and working-class whites living in distinct places engage with race and difference. In this way, this book provides a comparative, multi-sided ethnographic account of the co-constitution of whiteness, social class and place within and across semi-rural and urban locales in England. Indeed, this book's comparative approach to the formation of white class ethnicities challenges the assumption within both academic and popular circles that the white middle classes are better in Britain at doing multiculturalism and at being multicultural than the white working classes. This assumption is based on the idea that white middle class people have to some extent cultivated cosmopolitan, mobile and global lifestyles that embrace cultural differences in a way that working class people have not. My analysis that shows that some white middle class people are capable, are capable of expressing illiberal and racist views. At times, but not always, white working class discourses on racialized others are expressed in more subtle ways and idioms than those typically articulated by some white working class people. However, I believe it's exactly the sometimes blunt and crude racist resentments articulated by some white working class people that can provide the conditions in which others come to question the racist attitudes of family members, acquaintances, work colleagues and neighbours. In short, my comparative approach to white working and middle class racialized discourses 
interrogates the common assumption held by white middle class academics like me that the white middle classes are somehow more tolerant on matters of race, class, different and multiculturalism than the white working classes. So now I want to switch gear you know, and talk a bit about the inspiration for writing this book and to provide you with some methodological reflections. Now the subtitle of this book is On Home Ground, which I wanted to put first, but the publishers made me put it the other way, so I sort of don't make a thing about it being a subtitle. Um, um, and, and I want to examine what it means to be on home ground then studying racism and racialisation. <laughs> So the impetus for conducting the ethnographic studies that form the basis for this book is intimately entwined with my own biography. When I was 10 years old, I moved with my family from Leightonstone, an ethnically diverse suburb in East London, to Saddington, a smally, a smally, a small, wholly white and predominantly middle-class village situated in the rolling countryside of rural Leicestershire. While growing up in Leicestershire, I travelled each day from Saddington to schools in the ethnically diverse city of Leicester. And it's this, it's this childhood experience of moving and living across racially segregated places that stayed with me and became what I later set out to study in my doctoral research. Now this book draws upon two research projects that began while I was studying and working in social anthropology at the University of Manchester. The first project is my doctoral research, conducted between 96 and 2000, which set out to examine the reproduction of rural Leicestershire as a white space in the context of British, Asian and black settlement in the city of Leicester. And it's for this study that I conducted the residential fieldwork in Greenville and Colville. The second project was my postdoctoral research, conducted while I was employed as a research associate at Manchester between 2001 and 4, and it was this research that included the fieldwork in, in Streetville. After leaving Manchester in 2004, I continued to work on and write about the material collected from these two projects, and this book represents an accumulation of these efforts. I would now like to reflect then on the actual process of doing fieldwork at home in Leicester and Leicestershire. My aim is to render explicit some of the ways in which my white racial identity and ethnicity work to shape the fieldwork relationships and knowledge upon which this book is based. Led back insists that the ethnographic study of whiteness must not lapse into the reproduction of bourgeois caricatures of white racists. Thinking about this problem, he is reminded of Clifford Geert's insight that anthropologists should be wary of not only seeing the problem of otherness in distant cultures, but also in their own. From this point of view, Back insists, sorry, advocates that it would be misguided to render the racist into another other. In order to avoid this, he suggests social, science, social scientists must open themselves up to the possibility of identifying with and seeing a part of oneself in the racist other. He writes, we should insist on an ethics of interpretation that can identify what is alien and what is other, and yet at the same time hold on to the possibility of a semblance of a shared likeness. Back calls this interpretive space the grey zone. He concludes that politically engaged intellectuals of whiteness must endeavour to, to identify with Sorry, must endeavour to identify just what is familiar and what is alien. Now, I find this notion of grey zone useful to explain and characterise my fieldwork relationships in Leicester and Leicestershire. At times during the fieldwork, I identified with the people with whom I worked and thus felt a sense of familiarity and connection with them. 
At other times, I felt my co-conversationalists were unfamiliar and their views were alien to me. In fact, the notion trope and image of home provides a useful way of conveying this sense of familiarity and distance with the people that I came to know and work with. On the one hand, in the popular English imagination, home is a warm place of intimacy, love, comfort, identification and belonging. In this regard, home can refer to one's family, the place in which one grew up and or now lives, the street, town, village, neighbourhood and nation to which one feels a sense of belonging, connection and identification. On the other hand, this warm image of home and belonging is dependent upon the construction of a boundary between those who belong to the home place and those who do not. In this sense, the very idea of home is dependent upon the construction of outsiders that do not belong. Indeed, it's the idea of Britain being a home set apart from its empire and the people who live there that informed the imperial project. In this vein, Catherine Hall and Sonia Rose write, Home kept the other peoples of the empire at a distance. Their strange climates, fruits and vegetables, and peoples of colour were living in places that were incommensurable. The irony is that the imperial British home was constituted to a great extent by material and economic comforts, such as consumables and raw materials, including pineapples, bananas, sugar, tea, coffee, cotton, silk, tobacco, and many other goods that came from colonial exploits. My point here is that there are parallels between the inclusivity and exclusivity embodied in the notion of home and the familiarity and distance intrinsic to the grey zone. And it's with all these ideas in mind then that I'm going to attempt to provide some details of the way in which I felt both familiar and alienated at home and abroad during my fieldwork in Leicestershire. When I did the fieldwork in Greenville and Colville, I was 24 years of age a university postgraduate student and lived on a grant of about £6,000 a year. When I conducted the fieldwork in Streetville, I was 30 years old, employed by the University of Manchester as a research associate on a salary of approximately £20,000 a year and I had a PhD. This difference in my age, my academic status and income had an effect on my fieldwork relationships and my sense of belonging and not belonging to the places in which I lived and worked. In practical terms, I was able to afford to rent a flat on my own in Streetville. While in Greenville and Coalville, I took lodgings with white families. My experience of being a lodger in Greenville was lonely and isolating. I lived with a woman and her teenage daughter. For all sorts of reasons, some of which are discussed in the book, the mother and the daughter did not make me feel welcome or at home. I therefore spent the time I was at their home in my room and away from the family. In contrast, while in Colville, I lived with two young white women who were sisters and a similar age to me at the time. We quickly became good friends and they made me feel at home in their home. We often socialised together in the evenings in local pubs and clubs. The sisters also introduced me to their friends who lived locally, which provided an impetus for my focus on the views of young white adults in the region. In Greenville, my white middle-class identity was the norm, and so went unnoticed, uh, uh, explicitly unnoticed, people probably noticed, but they didn't tell me they noticed, with whom I lived and worked and who I interviewed. In Colville, my class identity became marked by my housemates in humorous ways. I had a funny but interesting job, was depicted as a clever student, and spoke with a posh accent that was emphasised by my repeated use of the words lovely and oh definitely. (laughs) (laughs) 
having the ability to afford to live on my own in a flat that I called home in Streetville was necessary for my acquisition of the credentials needed to join a local residence and tenants association. And it's my participation in this local neighbourhood network that forms the basis for chapter five of this book. So in short then, my, academic, my shifting academic status, aspects of my personal identity, influenced and shaped my research experiences over time and across place, and has definitely influenced my analysis. So despite these shifting positionalities, central to my relationships with my white and interracial research participants from Colville, Greenville and Streetville, was the building of connections, identification and rapport. This sense of connection was necessary for people to share with me the details of their lives and to open up about their views on issues of race and identity. In other words, I came to believe in and practice one of the central methodological tenets of social anthropology, namely, namely the building of relationships with people in the context of fieldwork is necessary for anthropologists to enter into the worldviews of their research participants. At times this process could be very rewarding, I became good friends with some research participants. I felt at home in their company and formed relationships that continued beyond the fieldwork period. Moreover, I successfully managed to build a good rapport with those white and interracial people I met only once or twice in the context of an interview. Crucial to this rapport was my identification with my co-conversationalists. On one level, this was pretty easy and straightforward. I was able to draw upon aspects of my biography and upbringing in Leicestershire to create a sense of personal identification with the people I interviewed and shared an experience of place. In this way, my white identity means that I have the privilege to claim belonging to Leicestershire and thus call this region of England my home. It was this privilege, dependent upon, in part upon my white identity, that I exploited in my fieldwork relationships. In short, I repeatedly emphasised and demonstrated to white and interracial research participants how I was at home in Leicester and Leicestershire. Nonetheless, I also found this sense of connection and recognition with some of my white co-conversationalists deeply troubling. At times of in the interviews with white research participants, they articulated what I considered to be racist views. In these instances, I knew that my whiteness was taken as a sign I would automatically agree or, uh, uh, with their views on race. And it's probably a bit more, you know when you write this stuff and then you read it again, you think, yeah, it's probably a bit more going on there. My, my unease with these situations was compounded by my repeated failure to confront and challenge racism on the spot. It was not clear to me what to say to challenge such views effectively, and any such challenges would also have endangered the relationships of trust I'd built up, in some cases, over time. Moreover, I didn't want to truncate and silence my white co-conversationalist ideas on race, ethnicity, belonging and difference, because this is what I'd set out to study. In this sense, at times I worked within and condoned the same framework of white cultural superiority and privilege that I had set out to analyse and challenge in this book. From this standpoint, the ethnographic material that forms the core of this book is dependent and exploitative upon my white racial identity on two fronts. Firstly, my ability to claim belonging to Leicestershire helped me to build a rapport with the people who participated in this research. This ability was in part dependent upon my privilege as a white woman. Secondly, my access to racist comments was also dependent upon my whiteness and my failure to confront such comments. 
it is no exaggeration then to say that in this sense, this book rests upon the racial privileges that I experience on a daily basis as a white woman who is familiar with and at home in Leicestershire. For these reasons, I don't claim any moral high ground for myself within this project. Notwithstanding this reality, I set out with the intention of studying white people in order to help undo and shift the anthropological gaze away from the study of so-called ethnic and racial others. And back in the 90s, that was quite novel. It's not novel. <laughs> <laughs> so following Frankenberg, I wanted to make the white self the object of study. The result is that I have come to understand that the reproduction of white power and privilege is not simply an individual and contemporary phenomenon, but is dependent upon and embedded within the histories of European colonialism and re reproduced at collective, societal, global and institutional levels. In mobilising my white ethnicity and racial privileges to access white and interracial individuals' views on race, ethnicity and difference in Leicestershire, my aim is to open up a creative and critical scholastic space whereby I can engage with, interpret and analyse the reproduction of white power and dominance pervasive within white post-colonial English society. Okay, so that's, that, that's the truncated version of the introduction. 